Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to those of you here in the room, those of you watching online. Uh, thanks for joining us. We're, um, as you've already heard, we're in part five of this series. If, if you're not sure what a series is, a series is just an opportunity for us to take three, four, five, six weeks, and we talk about the same thing over and over and over again until I get tired of talking about it, and we move on and talk about something else. Um, so we're in part five of this series talking about the ecclesia. Um, the, the big C church. How did it get started? Why is there a church today? Where did it come from? Um, and and we've kind of gone back to the book of Acts, A-C-T-S, um, that tells us the story of how the church got started. That's where we've been, um, seeing the, 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 the beginning of it, the growth of it, the movement of it, because um, that's what the church is. It's a movement. It's a gathering. It's an assembly um, of people, and it's been exciting, and there's been a lot of growth. And then last week, we saw a little bit of pain a little bit of heartache show up because that's how it's been for the last 2,000 years. There's been excitement and movement and growth, and there's been a lot of pain and a lot of frustration at the same time um, in the church. So the, the, the place where we left off last week, Paul, right? Paul starts his missionary journeys after he has this unbelievable conversion experience, goes from persecuting the church, trying to stamp it out, to being one of the main proponents of it, being the, the first missionary um, in the span of about three days, one of the most just craziest conversion stories in history. Uh, but today, where I'm going with today, what we're going today um, is to see another conflict pop up. Because while Paul is out in all these Gentile, non-Jewish areas, back in Jerusalem, which is majority Jewish, there's a little bit of a controversy happening. And, and this controversy that we're going to look at today is so relevant because the controversy is still around 2,000 years later. There's not a whole lot that's still around 2,000 years after the church got started, but this controversy is still around. This, what we're going to look at today is about 20 years after Jesus has left the earth. Um, it's after Paul's very first um, missionary journey. And here's what the controversy is about. Who gets to be a part of the church? Who, who gets to be a part? Who gets, who gets accepted and who doesn't? How good do you have to be? How many rules do you have to follow? Who gets to be a part of the church? And who has to stay on the outside looking in? That's, this, is, this is 20 years after Jesus left the earth, and they're already dealing with this. And it's understandable if you kind of have an idea, if you look around at what's happening in the, the religious social dynamic in the first century, because you have this, this group of Jewish people who have put their faith in Jesus as Messiah, but they've been raised on Torah, on 600 plus commandments, the, 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 ten, the big 10. They've, been, they've had it ingrained in them since they were little. So they basically thought that Christianity was just a continuation of Judaism because Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. So you had that going on. And at the same time, you had Paul over here having all of these unbelievable things happen in the Gentile world that they weren't raised with 600 plus laws. They weren't raised with the Big Ten. They didn't know dietary laws. They didn't know any of this stuff. And they're, they're going, Paul like, told us that we could just accept this grace and forgiveness that Jesus offered to us or that God offers to us through Jesus. He didn't say anything about becoming Jewish. And, and some of the Jews are going, wait a minute, Paul's not telling you the whole story. There's some stuff you got to do. There's some hoops you got to jump through. There's some, there's some things that you have to change in, in your life before you can come and be a part 
of the church. And, and, and in some regard, like especially if, if you're a church person like me, like you grew up in the church or you've been in a church for a really long time, you can identify a little bit with the religious leaders because part of Christianity is a moral standard, right? Like part of Christianity are, there's some do's and don'ts in the New Testament. There's some things you're not supposed to do. There's some things you are supposed to do, like don't lie, don't be greedy, you know, treat your spouse a certain way, you know, love your enemies, love your neighbor. There's some do's and don'ts. There's a moral imperative. That's a part of Christianity. But then there's this other unbelievable part that's a little bit mystical. It's a little bit harder to get our hands around, and it's grace. It's forgiveness, and it's, there's, there's these two things. And when rules and imperatives and law comes into conflict with grace and forgiveness, church people get a little weird. And I can say that because I is one. I is a church person. Okay, we just, we just get a little bit weird. We go, yeah, we'd really like for you to come be a part of our church, but we're going to need you to stop doing that. Or, or we're going to need you to clean that part of you up. Or, or parents, your, your, your kids bring somebody home one day, and there's like this piercing thing going on. You're like, ooh, what is that about, right? We, we, we get a little pharisaical, it's, and it's a natural reaction, especially for church people, because it's been around for 2,000 years. It's been a part of the church since the very beginning. And, and I will confess right up front that I don't completely understand this, but I believe it's true. That when Jesus walked this earth and he interacted with sinful human beings, he got this right. He got this right. There was no tension in him when it came to grace and truth. In fact, when, when John... The, the writer of, of the Gospel John, when he wrote his, his gospel, when he wrote his account of Jesus' life, he's looking back on all his interactions with Jesus. And, and he says, you know, he, Jesus was full of grace and truth. He wasn't 50% grace and 50% truth. He wasn't the balance of grace and truth. He was full, 100% grace, 100% truth. He embodied it totally, and there was no conflict in him when it came to this. And so when the local church gets this right, it's not clean yourself up first. It's also not let's throw away the standards so everybody feels good about themselves. It is, it is neither of those. When the local church gets this right, forgiveness isn't dumbed down, grace isn't dumbed down, and the moral imperatives taught in Scripture aren't dumbed down either. Somehow, they coexist. They operate at the same level. It's almost this mystical, unique, powerful thing that happens in the ecclesia, not necessarily in you, because last week, as I told you, you're not that good. But in the ecclesia, in the church, in the called out ones, this, this takes place. Is grace and truth 100% in the church. But you just need to know, the church has been wrestling with this since 50 AD. Been around for a while. And I don't think it's going away anytime soon. So what we're going to do today, really exciting. We're going to look at the first church business meeting. It's really exciting. And we're going to see, we're going to see where they wrestled with this tension because there are some huge takeaways for us as I think we think about our responsibility 
and as we think about our stewardship of, of the local church, of the ecclesia today. So if you have a Bible and you want to follow along, we're going to be in Acts again, Acts chapter 15. If you want to find that, um, I'm going to read the story. I'm warning you up front. There's kind of a part in here that's a little bit PG-13, and we're going to be a little uncomfortable for a minute, but I want you to be uncomfortable. I'm, I'm doing it on purpose because I want you to understand what the early church got tripped up on from the very beginning, okay? And now that I have everybody's attention, here we go. Acts chapter 15, verse 1. It says, certain people came down from Judea. Now, Judea is where Jerusalem is. That's the capital. That's where the apostles are, to Antioch. And we're teaching the believers. You got Christian or Jewish Christians traveling to these Gentiles that Paul started, or Paul, the church, Gentile churches that Paul started. Here's the message to the Gentile Christians: Unless you are circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Come again? It, it, what? What did you say? Yeah, unless you have a little surgery, you can't follow Jesus. Okay, um, Paul didn't tell us that part. So what exactly are you saying here? We're saying you can't be Christian until you become a Jew. That's what they were saying. All you, all you non-Jewish boys and men, like you weren't circumcised on the eighth day. It's not your fault. You didn't know. But here's the deal. If you want to be saved, like really saved, you got to become Jewish. Now, what this meant was that the new members class was mainly women and children is what happened. Okay? Like, the guys are out in the, drive, out in the, the parking lot. I love Jesus, but I just don't know about this, right? Okay? And I, and I know it's weird for us to talk about this. It's especially weird for us to talk about it publicly for some of you. And some of you just want me to move on, but I'm not going to because I want you to be a little uncomfortable. Because this is what they honestly believed. This is what they honestly thought. They really believed for a Gentile to be fully embraced by the church, men had to join the Moses Club before they could join the Jesus Club. And apparently, they would go to great lengths to make sure to go into these Gentile areas and make sure. Paul didn't tell you the whole story. There's a couple things you got to do. Here's what happened next. You can imagine this brought Paul and Barnabas, and Barnabas is kind of Paul's traveling buddy, into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. Jerusalem's the hub. It's the capital of Christianity. And Paul and Barnabas, you, you can imagine, they hear this and they're like, no, no. <laughs> This, this, this does not make sense, so we're going straight to the top. They're going to go see Matthew and Peter and John. We need to get this straightened out. Here, here, here they go. Verse 4, story continues. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the ecclesia. They weren't welcomed by a building. They weren't welcomed by a hierarchy. They weren't welcomed by a service. They were welcomed by the church, the gathering, and the apostles and the elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. So Paul shows up in Jerusalem and says, hey, before we have our conversation about what I just heard down in Antioch, I just need you guys to know I've been traveling around. I've been preaching the gospel. And everywhere I go, there are Gentiles going, we believe. We believe that. And God was doing unbelievable things in these Gentile cultures. 
And Paul says, but I haven't been telling them that they've got to become Moses followers before they become Jesus followers. We're sending some mixed messages here, guys. Let's get this straightened out. And this next part, we got to slow down. We're going to pause here for a second so you don't miss it. Okay, look at verse 5. Then some of the believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees. Did you catch that? The Pharisees, in Jesus' story, the Pharisees were the perennial bad guys. They were like Klingons or Thanos, right? Constantly a thorn in Jesus' side. But here we are, 20 years after the death and resurrection of Christ, after he ascends to heaven, and there are Pharisees who have put their faith in Jesus and have joined the church. If, If Paul could be converted... Don't you think some of the Pharisees could be converted? Rabbit, 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 rabbit trail here. Don't ever give up on Pharisees. Don't give up on Pharisees. Because you never know what God's going to do in their life. I know they get a bad rap, and I know, I know I am one of the people who give Pharisees a bad rap. But don't ever give up on them. Because some Pharisees believe that Jesus was the Messiah. Yeah, yeah, he messed with our categories, but he came back from the dead. So I think he's the Messiah. Some Pharisees had committed their life to Jesus. Here's the whole verse. Then some of the Pharisees who belonged to the party, or some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. They loved Jesus. They were just a little Pharisaical. They're not just talking about the Ten Commandments here. They're talking about the 600 plus other laws in the Old Testament. And they're saying, Paul, um, we love hearing what God is doing in the Gentile world, but we need you to go back to them and teach them to align their life around all of the laws and commands that we have been learning and and teaching and been abiding by for hundreds and hundreds of years. They got to eat different. They got to dress different, walk different, Sabbath different. And once they figure that out, they're in. That's what's going on here. The new car smell hadn't even done, been done yet in the church. And they're already wrestling with this. They're already dealing with this. Goes on, long meeting, verse 7, after much discussion. Peter, he's the kind of the leader, he's the authority there in Jerusalem. Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. Now, we skipped this story. We should probably go back to it someday. But, but Peter's saying, you guys remember when God sent me, like the, the leader of the Jewish church here in Jerusalem, to Cornelius' house, the Roman centurion? And remember when I came back and I reported to you that he and his entire family were given the Holy Spirit and they were baptized? Do you guys remember that? And like, oh, yeah, we, we kind of remember that. Big, fat, important concept here. God who knows the heart. God who knows the heart. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God knows people's hearts? See, because I don't know your heart. I just know your behavior. I don't know your heart. I just know your language. I don't know your heart. I just know you keep raving about not wanting to wear a mask. I don't know your heart. I just know you keep raving about everybody needing to wear a mask. Like, I don't know your heart. 
I just know your behavior, and the same is true of you. You don't know people's heart. You just know their behavior. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them, the Gentiles who don't know the law, don't even know there are 10 commandments, much less 600 plus other laws, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us, the good Jewish boys and girls who've done it all right, and them. For he purified their hearts by faith. And then Peter asks a great question. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? He's, he's going, guys, we don't even keep the law that well. All the 600 plus commandments, we don't even do it that well. So why are we going to require them to do something that we don't even do that well? It doesn't make any sense. No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. And I, I cannot fully communicate the gravity of this in that moment. For that Jewish culture, I just can't. But this is so important, okay? If you, if you haven't been in church for years or you never miss, please don't miss this. Here's what Peter's saying. He's saying God can purify a heart before you purify your life. God can purify a heart before you get rid of that habit. And again, for church people, that's hard. Well, no, they got to they gotta stop doing that before. no. God can purify a heart before you fix your marriage. God can purify your heart before you finally face up to the fact that you got some insecurities that drive you into behaviors that you're ashamed of. He can purify your heart before you purify your life. That's what Peter is trying to get these Jewish Christians to understand. Now, I'm going to skip the rest of what Peter says. You can go back and read it later if you want. But when he's done, when he's done, James, the brother of Jesus, stands up to speak. And, and this is the guy who came to the conclusion that his brother was the son of God. That's some serious evidence for the fact that Jesus is who he said he is. Because I've asked you this before. What would it take for your brother to convince you he was the son of God? James came to that conclusion that, that his brother was the Son of God. And, and here's what James says about this. Many of you have heard me talk about this before, but if you don't know, this is one of the things that, that guides me as pastor. It gui it's guided my ministry for years. James says, I've heard what Paul said. I've heard from the Pharisees. Peter, thank you for your words. Here's my conclusion. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Period. He says, I, I know there's a standard. I, I know the laws, commands. I've learned them since I was a little boy. And I know my brother was all about grace and forgiveness. And sometimes there seems to be a conflict between those two, two things. It's messy. But here's what I think we should do in this matter. We should not make it difficult for the people who are turning to God. Anything that makes it difficult for Gentiles who are turning to God we should remove it if we can. 
Because this is not about who's here. This is not about who already believes. This is not about who's already in, who already knows the rules and how they got their life put together. This is about who's not here yet. And anything we do that makes it unnecessarily difficult for people turning to my brother is resisting the very thing my brother would want to see happen. He's not finished. That's what he says they shouldn't do. Here's what they should do. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals in blood. And the guy who's taking notes is going, okay, what's the fourth one? And James says, that's it. I mean, that, what? Yeah, that's, that's it. James, hold on. You have taken 600 plus laws and the big 10 commandments. You've basically set them aside and said, we're just going to tell them two things. Try not to offend the Jews and abstain from sexual immorality. That's it? What about not lying and cheating the Sabbath and all the stuff that we're not supposed to do? Yeah, let's, let's not burden them with that stuff yet. Let's just, let's just tell them, try not to offend the Jews because the meat sacrificed to idols and the blood thing, that was offensive to their Jewish brothers and sisters in the church. So let's put our Jewish brothers and sisters first in this area. And then let's tell them to abstain from sexual immorality. And then they can be a part of the church. That's it. Come join the ecclesia. Be a part. You're in. And I, this is so funny. They send a letter. They send a letter to, to, to the churches in that church in that region. Here's what happened. Verse 31. The people read it, read the letter, and were glad for its encouraging message, especially the guys. <laughs> and you know what happened? What happened is what's not recorded in Acts. What happened is, the church avoided its very first potential split. And you know what the split was going to be over? Moral imperatives. This is what the law says versus grace. That's what the split was going to be over. And they said, you know what? Those two things shouldn't be in conflict. Jesus' church should embody, not the balance of, all of. Grace and truth. And, and the church avoided its very first split, potential split. And, and this is so huge. Obviously, today is not enough time to go into all the details. But this, this is a big deal. It should be a big deal to us. It should be a big deal to us. So I, I want to point out three things that I think every local church either has or will struggle with them. These are, these are three things I believe that we should pay attention to, and I'm actually labeling them as a virus because there hasn't been enough talk about that lately, so that's what we're going to talk about. No, I, I'm, I'm labeling the virus because we can't do anything about the existence of the virus, but we can do everything in our power to mitigate it. We can do everything that we can do as individuals, as families, as a church to make sure that these don't find its root here at Grace Point, okay? So here they are real quick. First one is this. We need to avoid the virus of focusing on insiders to the exclusion of outsiders. 
Avoid the virus of focusing on insiders to the exclusion of outsiders. Every local church over time struggles with focusing on insiders to the exclusion of outsiders. And by that, I just mean the people who are already here, who know the songs, know where to sit, know how to park, know how to check their kids in. They know the ins and outs. And the outsiders, I just mean by people who aren't here. They don't care what's going on here. Every local church over time has to take measures to resist focusing on insiders to the exclusion of outsiders. See, just, just let you in a little bit on my world. People who don't come to Grace Point never call me to complain about what's happening at Grace Point. That never takes place. Like, I've never got an email from somebody who doesn't attend Grace Point having an issue with something that either we are or aren't doing. Do you, do you know why? They don't care because they're, they're not here. They're ignoring us. They never think, hmm, I wonder what Grace Point's doing. They never think that. It's the, it's the squeaky will principle, right? And consequently, it's easy for churches. It's easy for churches to become focused on the people who are already there, the people paying the bills, the people doing the work, the people complaining the loudest. It's just natural, but it kills churches. It's a virus. It's a virus. The worst thing, I think one of the worst things that could happen to a church is that they just get comfortable. They, they, they get satisfied. They start to coast because we've got everything we need. We've got this grace, this forgiveness, this community, this, this confidence. We are good. But if we're serious, and, and I'm just throwing it out there, if we're serious about making room for the 96,000 in our community with no relationship with Jesus and his church, if we're like serious about that, we, not just me, we, you and I, have to fight. We have to resist becoming insider-focused to the exclusion of outsiders. Because one, at one time, you and I, we were outsiders. We were on the outside looking in. We have to resist that. Second one, it's a little more insidious. Avoid the virus of drifting towards law and away from grace. Now, I don't mean theologically, okay? I don't mean that we're going to start teaching that you have to work your way to heaven. That's not what I mean. I mean practically. Practically speaking, the natural tendency for local churches is to have categories and policies, Categories and policies. And that's what's happened in Acts 15. In Acts 15, the category is you're Gentile. The policy was you got to be a follower of Moses before you're a follower of Jesus. And as long as there's categories and policies, I never even have to have a conversation with you. I just say that's the policy. Once you figure out how to follow the policy, then you and I can have relationship. In Acts 15, you have categories and policies. But when you see churches that are drifting more towards grace than law, you see conversations. Is that messier? Oh, you better believe it. It's way messier. It's a lot cleaner to have categories and policies. It's much messier to have conversations, but that's what Jesus did. He's, he's, he's walking along the road one day, and he sees Matthew sitting at his tax collector table. He says, hey, Matthew, why don't you follow me? And it's not in the text, but you can kind of, 
sense Peter and the rest of the disciples going, Jesus, he's a tax collector. Like everybody in this town hates him. Category, tax collector. Policy, quit collecting taxes and then you can be a part. And Jesus like, Peter, shut up. Matthew, just get up and follow us. I just, I just want to start a conversation. But Jesus, he's in the wrong category. I don't care. I don't care. I just want to have a conversation. I want to start a relationship and see where it goes. And churches, Christians that are okay with the messiness of grace, that are me- the messiness of conversations rather than categories, are far more likely to experience the merger of full-on truth and full-on grace at the same time. And the third one, third virus, focusing on preserving rather than advancing. Focus on preserving rather than advancing. Now, um, for those of you who started your own business, I don't know if, if any of you have or not, but when you started your own business, you remember um, how there wasn't a whole lot to preserve at the very beginning? There, there wasn't a whole lot to risk at the very beginning, and then it grew to a small business, and then a medium-sized business, and then maybe a large company. And all of a sudden, you began to protect. You began a little bit risk-adverse because over time, in the beginning, you're willing to risk everything because there's not a whole lot to risk. But over time, you have more to lose. You have, you have more to risk because you have more to lose. Churches are the same way. Same way, especially established churches and big churches. Just think about, just think about this church. You, most of us weren't here, but 40 years ago, this church started with a little bit more than a vision. And 40 years later, we got a building, we got a budget, we got a staff, we got money in the bank. There's all kinds of risk. And the tendency over time is for churches to take a step back and preserve, preserve, preserve instead of advance. Another word for advance, risk. Another word for risk, faith. It's much, much more difficult to advance than it is to preserve. Yes, we need to be fiscally responsible, need to be wise in our decision making. But if we get focused on preserving rather than advancing the mission, we've been infected. We've been infected. It happens to local churches. It happens to denominations, entire denominations, all the time. And it started, started in the very first century. So those are viruses. Here are the vaccines. Okay? Three commitments. Three commitments I would like us to make to make sure these viruses don't take hold at Grace Point. I can't force you to make these commitments. I will not force you to make these commitments. But if nothing else, you'll hear where my heart is and where I think the majority of those who call this place home are, okay? I'm going to put them up on the screen, explain them, and then I'm going to pray, and we're done, okay? Talked about the first one a couple weeks ago. First commitment, let's be bold. Let's be bold. Do you know how to keep from becoming insider-focused? You be bold. You be bold. You're, you're bold in terms of who you invite and what you invite them to. Um, you're bold in, in speaking up and helping us keep this place open and welcoming to people who don't necessarily consider themselves insiders. You're bold in witnessing to what Jesus has done in history 
and what he's done in your life outside the walls of this place, outside of your circle. You're bold. Let's be bold and keep away from becoming insider-focused. Second one, let's always err on the side of grace. Let's always err on the side of grace. When there's a conflict between the moral imperative, here's what Scripture clearly teaches, and here's somebody who's not quite there yet, who doesn't quite get it, who's not quite doing it, I think we have to decide if we're going to make a mistake, if we're going to go too far either way, let's err on the side of grace. Hey, aren't you glad God did that with you? Yeah. Aren't you glad God didn't say, I'm going to love you and accept you, I'm going to invite you into my family, but here's 600 things I need you to do first. Aren't you so glad that God extended his grace to you before you fixed that habit? Why would we not do the same for other people? Why would we not err on the side of grace? I've never heard a good answer to that question. But that's how you ensure you don't get infected with the virus of categories and policies, categories and policies. It's air on the side of grace. Last one, let's remain open-handed. What I mean by that is when it comes to church, when it comes to ministry, God is the one who put the church in our hands. It is his. It's not ours. It is his church. He has given it to us for a season to lead, to be a part of, to advance but let's keep our hands open because he can take it back whenever he wants. Let's keep our hands open. And this becomes increasingly difficult as we have more to protect. It gets harder and harder the more we have to protect. But I hope we take more risks in the next decade of our time together than we have in the last decade. And those of you who've been around for the last decade know we've risked quite a bit but I hope we take more risks over the next 10 years. We have more to risk, more to lose than we ever have as a church, but we also have more potential than we've ever had, and I would make the argument that we have more opportunity than we've ever had because of where our culture's at, because of our current cultural moment. So let's just refuse. Let's refuse to lean towards protecting and opposed to advancing because here's, here's what I believe. I believe James was right. He wasn't just right 2,000 years ago. I think he was right for today. He said, you know what? I can't answer all the questions. I can't deal with all the particulars. I can't sort out all the minutia. But here's what I know. We shouldn't make it difficult for people who are turning to God. If there's a barrier that we can remove, let's remove that barrier. And if we can be intentional, I think if we can be intentional about those three commitments... If we can pursue what it means to be a church where this grace and truth are, are full-on, 100%, we're not the balance of, but we're full-on full on grace, full-on truth, there's, there's something powerful, dynamic, that, that God will use us in a way that he might not if we don't pursue full-on grace and full-on truth. And perhaps God will use you, perhaps God will use us to do something unique and remarkable in our generation as we continue to pursue what it looks like to be the big E ecclesia 
to be a part of the ecclesia, and to be a part of the little C church. This is what it looks like, I think. We remain open-handed. And we say, God, you do in us, you do through us, whatever you want, but we're making ourselves available because we want full-on grace and want full-on truth to be on display in this local ecclesia. Let's pray. Father in heaven, this, this, this is your word, it's your truth. God, I'm so grateful for, for people like Peter and James and Paul, people who, who grew up in a, a system where this, this, this law, this command, this truth was just ingrained in them from a very early age. And through your spirit, you worked in such a way that they, they, they didn't throw it all away. They didn't get rid of it. But there was this, this incredible grace that came about that it happened in practical ways. Happened in such a way that they were open, they, they were open to letting people that were on the outside come in. And I don't think we completely understand what that looks like for a first century Jew to allow a Gentile to be a part of their community. And not only that, but to, open, to, to welcome them with open arms. God, would you help us in, in our culture where there's so much division, there's so much us versus them, there's so much left versus right, would you help us as your people to love each other, to love people who are on the opposite side of the aisle from us, and we allow that love to be the apologetic, to be the, the influence in our relationships, in our family, in the places of influence that you've, you've given us. God, would you help this place, this local church, to continue to be a place where full-on grace and full-on truth is on display over and over and over again. And God, would you show us as individuals do you show us how, what it looks like for us to protect it, to do whatever we can by your word, through the power of your spirit, to be people and to be a church of grace and truth. And in the end, we'll give you praise because this is your church. It is not ours. You've just given it to us for a short period of time. Did you do your work? Did you have your way? And we ask this, we pray this in Jesus' name.